The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hello, my friends, and welcome to another exciting episode of Negotiate Anything. This show is produced by the American Negotiation Institute, and with over 5 million downloads and listeners in over 180 countries, listeners just like you have made this the number one negotiation podcast in the world. Hi, my name is Kwame Christian, and I am the founder and CEO of the American Negotiation Institute. Here at ANI, we believe that the best things in life are on the other side of difficult conversations, and we are passionate about providing you with the best content that will help you to make your difficult conversations easier, both at work and at home. Lastly, I want to remind you that we offer consulting and conduct trainings, both virtually and in person, all around the world. Our focus is in three main areas. First, negotiation and conflict resolution. Second, leadership. And lastly, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Check the link in the description below to learn more about how we could work with you and your team. And now, without further ado, let's jump into the interview. Rami Day, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Kwame. Such a pleasure to be here. Likewise. So how about you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Absolutely. So I am an associate general counsel for a Fortune 500 company in the Asia division of that company. And I am based in Tokyo and cover multiple regions in Asia. So uh, Japan, Korea, Philippines, Thailand, and others. And uh, I have uh, living in Japan with my husband and three kids. I'm originally from the U.S. and admitted in California, but through a long winding story, ended up in Japan many years ago and, and have been practicing there uh, ever since. This is great. And um, of course, Aramide, there are probably tons of um, American, Black, Nigerian mm-hmm. lawyers living in Tokyo. I'm, I'm assuming I mean, that correctly. I right? a dime a dozen, Kwame. So many. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe I'm the only one. I don't know. One of those. One of those two one options. Of those I'm two. not sure. So, yeah. Somewhere in between, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So listeners, this is going to be a fun one because what we're going to talk about is culture in negotiation. And obviously, Aramide has a very interesting perspective of it, on this because she's been exceptionally successful in her role even though she is a unicorn. And I think this is a really empowering story about how mindset and skills can really help you in in almost any situation. So just just set the stage for us here. How did you arrive in Japan? And and tell us about that experience. Yeah, so as many people who, um, expats who are in Japan will tell you, it kind of starts with a, well, I came for just a little bit and ended up staying a lot longer. So my journey started uh, back when, so before I was where I'm in my current role, I was at a law firm, um, big law, international law firm for 15 years. And I was about a second or third year associate. And um, really just sort of by a fluke, there was a partner who was looking for associates to come to Japan for just a three month stint. And I was asked to do this opportunity. And I actually said no at first. Um, It was one of these sort of like fear, oh my goodness, how's that gonna work? I don't speak Japanese. 
And I went home and I told my husband at the time, and he said, did you just turn down the opportunity to live and work in Japan? Are you insane? Like you, you, you got to go back and say yes. Uh, so he's, he's, he's basically my life coach and, and advisor. So on his wise counsel, uh, I, I went back to that partner. I said, you know, I've had a change of heart and um, can I do that? And it was really just to meant kind of get tied people over the, the litigation department over until, um, you know, this, th during this heavy three month period. And so I did that and it was very successful, had a great experience. And the firm asked me to then do a two-year stint after that. So that was about 2007 was the first three-year stint. And then I returned 2008 to nine-ish, so about two years then. And then I thought, Japan, that was great. Back to San Diego where I was practicing. And I really thought that I was done. Uh, and again, my husband said, I, I think you're going to end up back there again one day. I think it's going to happen. And lo and behold, you know, just kind of through another fluke, I started working on a matter in Japan in about 2014, 15 or so, and was invited to come back again for, I think it was, it was sort of a, you know, come back for a little bit, maybe two years, maybe it's going to be a bit longer. And that was, yeah, 2016 when I returned and have been here ever since. Did you say you didn't speak Japanese? Uh, yes, <laughs> didn't and don't, I should say. Uh, unless we're counting, I know, it, it, it's wild. Uh, it, unless we're counting like my preschool Japanese or my, I'm able to tell a taxi where to go. I'm able to order some water in a restaurant. But I think you're probably thinking a little bit more business context. No, I do not do that. I cannot do that. Um, so yeah, that's another kind of thing that makes me, I think, a little bit unique about my experiencing being a lawyer uh, being a lawyer in Japan. This is mind blowing. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> That's what I'm here for Kwame. <laughs> you know, yes. keep things interesting. This is great because I think this is important context because as we start to transition into like the actual skills, um, I think it's important context to understand how does your day-to-day -day operate being a lawyer in Japan, not speaking Japanese. Yes. Yeah. So, so what it started with when I was at the law firm, I essentially was sort of, um, so I was in the litigation group and I was doing what we call inbound litigation. So that mm -hmm. is usually representing a non-Japanese company. So think of the biggest U.S. company or European company that has some litigation in Japan. And I would be working with the Japanese lawyers at the firm and sort of almost like a, a cultural interpreter. So helping, let's say, a U.S. company understand the legal, uh, the differences between U.S. and Japanese legal system. And so a lot of what, you know, is, is working very closely with the Japanese negotiators, because to be clear, I'm not admitted in Japan. I am not uh, a lawyer under Japanese law. I'm only a U.S. lawyer. Um, but what we found is that it was difficult for U.S. lawyers who come from, you know, discovery, heavy disputes, you know, lengthy, expensive litigation to Japan, where it is just an entirely different system. And often these big companies who have their global strategy and litigation are trying to apply that in Japan and kind of, it just didn't work. So you really had to, to find a way to meld Japanese system, maybe US structure, strategy, and I was part of the team to help to help do that because what was happening is these U.S. companies were coming to Japan wanting to litigate their way, and they were like, "I don't understand what's happening." <laughs> you know, like that my my Japanese lawyers aren't doing what I want, and I don't under you know it's like kind of this like black box of what was happening in Japan litigation. And so the service that we were able to offer as 
the law firm was to break things down, make it again that kind of melding of systems um, for you know really pretty great results. This is fascinating because what I'm finding really interesting here is that I think if you don't have this type of experience, you might just say, if I want to expand my business in a different country, I'll just get a lawyer from that country and they'll mm. do legal things in that yeah. country. But yeah. it seems like there's they're missing a key element, which is you. It's like we... They, uh, the, the Japanese lawyer understand the law and then the U.S. business understands the business, but then we have to understand the, the melding of the cultures mm-hmm. in order to be successful, right? Yes, yes, that's right. That's right. Um, and, and so that was, um, I thought, always like, you know, fascinating work and, um, but, you know, still very like litigation oriented. And so now when I'm in, in an house role that is, you know, very generalist and and commercial and corporate. And so I have a little bit of the litigation experience, but now it's much broader than that. But a lot of that sort of um, cultural interpretation, translation of systems I'm doing on a daily basis because I might be operating or you know, doing business with uh, or, or helping my business colleagues operate in regions that have a little bit of a mix of, you know, maybe it's a um, European company that has an entity in Thailand that is operating and doing business with my company that's a European company that has a Japanese component. I mean, it's just, it's, there's a lot of like cross-cultural um, thoughts and processes that I'm thinking about on a daily basis, even in my non-litigation role. It's fascinating. And when you think about the negotiations that you find yourself in, what do those look like? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, the negotiations that I do, I mean, at this point now it's, it's often contract negotiations. So, um, and it's not necessarily me face to face with an opposing party, but I might be advising like my business partners in-house or in-house clients rather on how to negotiate and how to um, position ourselves. Um, So, uh, I know one of your past guests, Netta, the ca- contract uh, redlining expert. You know, a lot of it is um, me advising our internal team how to position ourselves for what I think would be success on a particular, you know, contract uh, negotiation provision. Um, and so it's it's you know there's I, I it's sometimes it's not as much of the cultural context piece. Um, but sometimes it is, you know, having to me first explain to a business partner why we need to take the position that we need to. And then how do we frame that in a way that will convince our counterparty to accept our position? So fascinating, because what I'm realizing here is that there are layers to these negotiations, because even mm-hmm. though you're not at the table, you are negotiating with your internal partner. Um, convincing them of of a specific approach and then working with your internal partner to come up with a negotiation strategy that you can then execute at the table. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. It's it's very critical. And that's, um, you know, having been at a law firm for 15 years and, you know, not having this deep direct access to, you know, what's happening with businesses who want to do long-term business together and collaborate and move forward and ultimately reach a deal. 
um, it's just, it's been eye-opening. I've been in the role for about two years now and um, have really just learned so much from, you know, people like you and, and others on that I follow on LinkedIn and Laura Frederick about like contract principles, like how do you actually get things done? Uh, and there's really so many resources out there that I found now that have, have helped me. Um, and of course, the people I work with, you know, my, my boss and, and others in the legal department of sort of like teaching me these, these aspects of, you know, judgment and um, persuasiveness and, and argument and things like that, that are, you know, almost feel worlds away from the type of blurring that I was doing before, but I just really, really enjoy and really love. This is great. Does your company invest in professional development training? If you believe that your team would benefit from a negotiation workshop, all you need to do is go to our website, fill out the workshop request form, and then we'll set up a time to chat. These workshops are completely customizable and we've done them all around the country. Negotiation and conflict resolution skills are beneficial across all professions, but they're especially useful in procurement, purchasing, sales, sourcing, and contract management. Our calendar is filling up quickly, and we even have some workshops scheduled for next year. If you think you might want one, I'd suggest reaching out soon so you don't miss out. Check out the link in the description to learn more, and we will be right back after this. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we're changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. So come figure it out with me on the Hello Monday podcast. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives, like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or NYU professor Scott Galloway on choosing a career. I think the worst advice you can give a kid is follow your passion. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday with me, Jesse Hempel, on the LinkedIn Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm interested to hear what for you were some of the biggest surprises working in Japan? I think one, um, so one huge one is before I came, you know, I, I was doing all this before I, my very first trip to Japan, I did a lot of like trying to learn the language. I did a lot of like, okay, how do I say thank you? And how do I say, you know, all these like little things that I thought would be important in my communication with people, even realizing I was not going to become fluent. And what I did not do enough of, and which I think was probably more important for my everydayness, was understanding more about the culture itself in Japan and how it differs from the culture in the U.S. where I grew up. 
for example. So one thing that surprised me the most uh, after I'd been in Japan probably far too long to, to, to really understand this concept before I learned what the word was for it. So Japan is what is considered a high context society. And that essentially means that, um, you know, it's, it's, it's Japan has been, you know, it's kind of a collectivist sort of thinking about like the common good. This high context means that everyone is sort of operating generally from the same understanding. So you don't need to be as explicit we're clear about everything. There's a lot of inferences. There are a lot of things that are sort of unsaid. Um, and that's in contrast to a low context society like the US where um, more individualistic, we've got you know melting pot, people from all around the world. And we don't always have the same common upbringing, culture, background, low context. We don't have the same context. And so therefore things are um, you know, very explicit direct. You say exactly what you mean. You say it again, you say it again to make sure that the, the, the person that you're speaking to understands exactly where you're coming from. On the other side of that, Japan, high context, um, things unsaid, a lot of inferences. There's a saying about you know reading the air, which essentially sort of read between the lines because maybe everyone is saying one thing, but we kind of mean something different. So for an example, low context Japan. Um, this is something that I I learned the hard way, I guess you would say, but it's, it's, it's a very simple example. Um, but let's say you go to a restaurant in Japan and let's say there's, you know, you wanna order a burger and you wanna make some changes to what's on the burger. It says it comes with tomato ketchup and you wanna say, can you just hold the ketchup? Don't, don't put the ketchup on. A waiter server might tell you, ah, it's very difficult. And what they actually mean is no. So in Japan, it's considered a little impolite, a little bit rude to say no directly, to preserve harmony. You don't want to be, you don't want to come right out and say no. So instead, you sort of give a, not sure we can do that. And can you imagine in a negotiation context, if someone says to you, it's very difficult, what do you think? What do you think, Kwame? You hear that. It's difficult. <laughs> oh, I'm going to get that. <laughs> That's right, what I right? think. <laughs> right. It's difficult. It doesn't mean no. It means but I got a chance, right? I can still, I can still persuade you. Maybe they just need to go talk to the right people. But essentially, it's difficult means no. And I, I know I've for, for any Japan specialists out there, I'm sure I've oversimplified this, but I have waited many times for the it's difficult to change to a yes, and it has never happened. So understanding wow. something like that, um, that was very surprising to me. Um, that that there are times when in Japan, you might hear one thing, and it's not that anyone's trying to deceive you or mislead you, but in Japan, if there's an understanding that when I say X, I really mean Y, but you don't know that coming from your other, a different culture, a different understanding, a different background, then you're not going to be seeing eye to eye, right? There's going to be miscommunication, misunderstanding. So that's something that has been... Um, yeah, definitely something. Once I once I read about that and learned about that, I thought, why was I why was I spending time figuring out how to say hello and yes, please and thank you instead of here is how people operate, here is what's happening, and here's how communication works in Japan. Um, but but that's part of what kind of makes it just such a fascinating uh, experience for me because I learn about different cultures and how different people communicate and how you know 
one how the US might achieve an objective one way and in Japan we're going to achieve it an entirely different way but ultimately we can come to the same the same outcome this is great and i appreciate that example cuz that it's a brilliant example and for people who are listening and they're like why am i at this point in this podcast when i know i'm never going to do business in japan <laughs> big question the reason mm. is it is a great metaphor for any other cross cultural negotiation that you're going to have and when are we having cross cultural negotiations anytime you're talking to somebody that is not yourself you know because we have big c and little c culture because we might think about us versus japan but we might think about the legal department versus the marketing department within a company right your family versus my family i'm from the midwest you might be from new york we communicate slightly differently and so it really means like something we should stop and ask ourselves is what does that really mean to that person because what they said might mean something to us but the way they said it it might mean something completely different to them and i think this the the ultimate lesson is for people who are doing international negotiations and people who are negotiating with people who are other than themselves is hey we should pause and question everything what does that really mean to this person i think this is an opportunity for us to really supercharge our empathy because a lot of times we assume that we understand what somebody's saying but we don't take the time to investigate further to make sure that we're on the same page yeah absolutely i completely agree and i will say that even you know once i understood this about japan and high context society and you know maybe i'm not always going to hear the direct answer to something i still can't always assume that every japanese person that i meet is going to be high context and that it's difficult means no every now and then there will be someone who challenges my biases my assumptions my preconceived notions about what japanese people do, will do in certain situations and it's maybe you know a japanese person born in japan but happened to have lived in the us or somewhere outside of japan for many years and has a little bit more of a westernized style and if i go in assuming that they're sort of more traditional japanese culture as opposed to a westernized mindset then i'm going to misinterpret and so that's i think exactly right that it's you 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 know you can have this information to inform um what you believe someone's comments mean but then you still have to be focused on that specific person what does it mean to them or what does it mean for their company a japanese person operating within a european company versus a japanese person in a japanese company can be a very different perspective Absolutely and that's an important message because this shows the difference between cultural intelligence and stereotyping. Yes. Because Very when you stereotype so. you just say this is this kind of person these kind of people do this. Mm -hmm. Um highly problematic. Where yeah. instead where with high levels of cultural intelligence what you're realizing is that the an understanding of the culture provides you with a rebuttable assumption about mm. what this person perhaps might be like and then you still operate with the reality that this person is an individual and you're going to learn about this individual through the interaction with the cultural context in mind so you're yeah. still flexible enough to adjust on the fly yeah absolutely well said thank you no this is great and one of the things that i really like about your approach here is that you still were authentic to yourself with the way that you you transitioned because i think a lot of times people have a disempowering mindset when it comes to cross cultural negotiations they say these are all of the problems that will happen <laughs> because of the differences in culture but one of the things that you've been able to do really well is hold on to your strengths and authenticity and still operate at a high level so can you talk a little bit more about how you were still able to 
be yourself and lean into your strengths in this new environment? Yeah, I think um, a lot of that thing, and thank you for recognizing that and 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 saying all those kind things about that. It, it's been a journey and a process. I mean, I've been a lawyer for 17 years, and I would say that probably for the majority of it, I was definitely trying to fit myself into a particular box. I was trying to fit myself into what a big law lawyer looks like, sounds like, writes like, <laughs> talks like, all these things. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, I think I was, you know, I was at the firm for 15 years, so I must have been successful. I left on my own, you know, volition, uh, must have been a good thing. Um, but I think that trying to fit that box maybe held me back in some ways. Um, because, you know, if you're, if you're consci- kind of consciously always thinking about, okay, how do I, you know, how am I presenting? How am I, am I coming across like serious enough and lawyerly enough? Um, I think that then suppresses creativity and uh, expression and all these things. And, you know, there's all these folks advocating for, you know, show up as your full self and authenticity. And maybe it can get a little bit tiresome, but I can say that for myself, that when I started to do that, um, for example, commenting on your LinkedIn posts, which has now led me to this moment, um, that's something I wouldn't have done before because I wouldn't have felt comfortable to put myself out there as, you know, again, who, who cares what I think? Let me just stick to my box of litigating and doing my work. Um, so I think, you know, when I talk about the journey, it's been, you know, combination of things, new environment, new, you know, new work, new company that I'm working with for me, new for me. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I did soon after joining, I we had a, a, a team project and one of the sort of team building things was doing the strengths, Clifton Strengths Finder uh, or strength, I've forgotten what the name is now, but um, that assessment. And, you know, we had a team of maybe 15 to 20 people who went through that. And I remember doing that same Strengths Finder when I was at my law firm 10 years ago or so. And I remember it was a, I mean, you know, we're in a huge conference room and, but you're at a table of people and I knew that the results were going to be discussed. So I answered the question the way that I thought a lawyer should answer them. (laughs) And so it came back was like, kind of like me, they were kind of my strengths. And this time I said, all right, I just, I really want to know what are my strengths? And so I answered authentically as me, the first things that came to mind. And what was so interesting, I was in a room of 20, 20, 15 to 20, all other, everyone else, Japanese men. And the results that came back, we put them up on a screen. And I think it was, you know, they give you like your five strengths and four out of five of mine fell into sort of like I forgot what category it is, but it's something about like harmony and connectedness and connecting with other people. And the trainer said, Aramide-san, it's amazing. You're very Japanese. They were all the kind of strengths that in Japan would be celebrated. Harmony, connectedness, working with other people. And as I saw that, I thought, wow, what, what, a, what a change in person that I am that when I was still at my firm, I would have seen that result and think, well, that's weakness. Or I would have been worried that other people would look at that and see weakness. You're a litigator. You're supposed to be X, Y, Z, you know, whatever, (laughs) Um, you know, argumentative and strong and confident, all these things, not woo-woo connected and and all these things. Um, But what I found, uh, to go back to your question, (laughs) kind of long-winded answer, but I found that it has allowed me to enjoy my work more 
and I think just be more um, effective in my work because again, I'm not trying to force or fake or be something that I'm not or fit myself into some box that I don't neatly fit into. So that's the journey. Oh, that's great. I appreciate you sharing that. And I think a major takeaway for everybody listening to this is that authenticity leads to happiness and effectiveness. That, that's for me, really it. absolutely. For me, absolutely. So yes, if I could encourage anyone else to sort of, you know, and maybe your thing isn't joy and connectedness and, you know, all these things that work for me. But I think for me that, that whatever your thing is, I encourage you to do your thing um, for those, for those very reasons. Now, what changed inside of you that allowed you to lean into that authenticity this time versus feeling like you needed to conform in the past? Yeah, that's a good question. I, you know, it could be that the, it was during the pandemic, you know, the, a lot of folks reevaluating, you know, who are you, what, what's most important, um, maybe just, just not being a little bit tired, I guess, of, 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 of trying to fit into something and realizing that I kind of had a new opportunity with a new company and new people around me to, to just try it out, you know, just let, let, let me just go in as me and see what happens. Um, and fortunately, you know, I, I'd say that's worked out. I think it, you know, in, in all honesty, I think it would be very difficult for me to have made this change where I was before. And of course, I had fantastic experiences, fantastic colleagues, so many wonderful things, but I, every, you know, every, on occasion, I would still find myself, okay, I've got an opposing counsel. I've got an opposing, you know, I've got a client I've got to try to um, impress in some way. And so I just found myself in these situations again and again, where I felt like it was going back into like, all right, time to put on that lawyer box, lawyer hat and, and, uh, and do that. And so I think, yeah, I just think a lot of kind of shifts in um, the world and, and, you know, and, personal and professional life that allowed me to try to try this and been very happy that I did so. This is great. And w- one of the things that I have found is that a lot of times I see people using their identity as a limiting tool. And so what I mean is that it, it creates almost like a s- series of self-limiting beliefs that turn into self-fulfilling prophecies that lead to failure. And yes. so you are a Nigerian American a black woman, you were a minority in the US, and then you moved to Japan. I don't know the numbers, but I can assume you're more of a minority there. Mm, much more. And yes. There, and there were no. probably little voices in your head that were saying, you are a black woman, you're a minority, life is going to be tough. Mm. How did you overcome those self-limiting beliefs and lean into your authentic self and then still be effective? Wow, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I can't say that I have any magical pill for that. Um, a lot of it is probably my support system. So the people around me telling me, you you got this, you could do this, whether it's family. Um, I mentioned my husband, he's my, my biggest cheerleader supporter and fan. Um, and and he, he would be the one to tell me, um, you know, sometimes you know, have those moments of self-doubt of, um, do I belong? By the way, I'm not going to call it imposter syndrome. We can have a whole nother discussion about that, but that's not what it is for me. Um, but, you know, when I would walk into a, a room and I'm the only black person, I'm the only woman, I'm the only black woman. And he would tell me, you belong, you belong, you belong in every room that you enter, you've worked hard, you deserve it. And I think having folks like that kind of build up my confidence, then you start to, 
either just do the actions that that they think you're capable of and maybe even start to believe it. Um, and and I, you know, so I've definitely had some of those, I think, self-limiting thoughts. Gosh, this isn't gonna work. Being an American, non-Japanese speaking lawyer in Japan, like how does and and really, truth be told, I don't know. <laughs> you know, I I don't I don't have a magic <laughs> formula, but I know I am living the life, and it's been fantastic for me professionally and personally. And so sometimes I think you really just have to kind of get out of your head. Um, you know, maybe other people are going to tell you no, but if other people are telling you you can do this, and other people are giving you the opportunities, and um, you step up and you rise to the occasion, you know, don't don't let your own negative thoughts and 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 self-doubt hold you back from what's possible oh i think that's great oh, i appreciate that i think that's that's a message that everybody needs to hear really that's that's really important um let's say hypothetically if there are people out there who are trying to 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 make a shift but there's something that's holding them back or there's a difficult conversation that's coming up and they're starting to get those kind of self-limiting beliefs like this person will not agree with me or they won't accept me because of this what is one piece of advice that you'd give them to to get the courage to take that step mm. one piece of advice i think so i i would i would look if, if, you, if you've got one of those supporters in your life I would have a conversation with that person because I think sometimes there can be, you know, a mirror out there, someone who has maybe a um, more encouraging view of yourself and your potential than you have. And, you know, you can, you, it, I think there's also internal work that can be done. Uh, I know how I do things. I go to, you know, I, I'm big on podcasts. I might look for a podcast episode. <laughs> salary negotiations or, you know, difficult conversations, Kwame, you've got a full library of those types of things. Um, but I think, you know, again, as someone who relies on support and community, um, having a conversation with, with someone who knows you well and uh, can maybe be a more accurate um, judge of what your potential is than, than you have at that moment when you're feeling a little bit maybe down or, or negative about your potential. That's great. That is great. Hard pivot, hard mm. pivot. All right, I'm ready. Let's go. Do you like Japanese rap? Oh, mommy. Um, I can't say that I really know it. I've, what? I've not. I mean, is there, is there anything? Yeah, I, I can say that is not a, a genre that I've, I've looked into very much. But, How you've okay. been there? I know Listen. I've been there. I know, I know. Maybe I'm too sheltered. Is there something that you would introduce <laughs> me to? Any yes. particular artist. Okay. DJ DJ Ken Watanabe and Yellow Bucks. Listen, okay. this this is fire. Like Whitney and I last night, we were just jamming out. Um, Whitney's like, who is this? Me, are they just rapping fast? I can't understand what they're saying. Like it's <laughs> Japanese rap. She's like, get out of here. Are you serious? <laughs> it's great. amazing. I'll, I'll send That's you some great. songs. I'll okay, please do. Songs. Please do. Yeah, so you're yeah. a fan. Okay. Maybe, yeah. Okay. Maybe we'll Have you learned some, some Japanese? Have you learned some Japanese by listening to um, it? Or no, it's just kind no. of all. <laughs> all right. All right. It's probably my, like my daily experience of like people are talking and like, I don't know what they're saying. All right. Yes. Yeah. No, no. Maybe we'll put some we'll put some links in, <laughs> in the description of the episode, along with a link it. to your LinkedIn profile, of course, because your your posts are incredible. So everybody, I suggest oh, following you. my friend here, Arami Dang here. And this is this is great. I, before you go, can you let listeners know the best way to get in touch with you if they want to connect? 
Yeah, um, it would be LinkedIn, the same way I connected with you as an avid fan. Um, and and actually, I, I mean, plug for LinkedIn, like I'm, that's part of my my journey and evolution of just sort of like starting to put my thoughts out there and connect with people. And I'm one of those people who was just like, your podcasts are great. And I love everything you're doing. And thank you so much. And, and now it you know, led to you inviting me to be here today. So I'm grateful for that. And yeah, LinkedIn, happy to connect and uh, and chat with folks that way. This is great. Aramide, thank you so much. Really thank appreciate it. Thank you so much, it. Kwame. Really appreciate it as well. Have a great day. Congratulations. You've just joined an elite club. By listening to a full episode, you're now officially on the Negotiate Anything team. So welcome aboard. What most team members do is they subscribe to the podcast because that allows them to automatically get the latest episodes of the show. The best things in life lie on the other side of difficult conversations. Keep learning, keep practicing, and keep getting better. Your relationships will improve, your career will soar, and you'll have the confidence you need to get the most out of these crucial conversations. Again, thank you for joining the team. We're excited to have you and I will see you in the next episode. I'll catch you later.